0: You are listening to the Midtown Church Podcast, a ministry that exists to make Jesus known. If you have a Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're in a... a series on this letter, but as you know, or at least many of you know, we've jumped ahead. We're in a resurrection series called Raised. First Corinthians 15 is often referred to as the resurrection chapter. It's the Bible's most in-depth, deep dive look at the resurrection of Jesus and the implications for us. And so we've really just slowed down, spending seven or so weeks in chapter 15. We're looking at verses 20 to 28 today. But before we do anything else, let's, let's pray. Uh, Father, um, uh, your servant David writes in Psalm 119, open my eyes that I may see the wondrous things from your word. And that's my prayer this morning as well. Show us the wondrous things today from your word. Um, I, I pray against all distraction this morning, uh, even good distraction, even things we're really fired up about. Those are good things, we're to enjoy them, but they too can take our eyes off the most important thing and that being our eyes set on you. So I pray against even good distraction, but certainly the hard distractions, the things that maybe we're carrying that are burdens. I pray that as we go to your word, not that we would ignore those things, but that we would help uh, to see them through the promises and assurances that are ours in Christ. So guide us, lead us, illumine your word today for all of us in Jesus, your name I pray. Amen. I think we all know what pet peeves are. You know what a pet peeve is? I think we all know that, right? I think uh, even if you don't know how to describe a pet peeve, you have them, I'm sure. Um, Pet peeves are those annoying habits, either from another person or maybe a whole group of people. Uh, bad customer service is a pet peeve of many, many people if you, if you kind of Google it. For me, one of my greatest pet peeves, if you came up to me, got anywhere close to me and you started cutting your fingernails, that sends me through the roof. I, I cannot stand fingernail clipping at all. In fact, I so detest it that when I clip my own fingernails, I go outside of my house and do it just to save my family from it. Uh, Loud chewing, loud chewing is one of those things that grates at least on on some people. Uh, One one pet peeve that shows up in my life every once in a while, I think I've gotten better at dealing with it, is negativity, people who are negative. You know, Debbie Downers, right? Eeyore type people only see the bad in things, the problems that could arise. That kind of drives me a little bit batty because of my personality is more like Everything's going to be great, right? I'm that 30,000-foot view guy. It's going to be great. Don't worry about it. We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out as we go. But what I've discovered over time, as I hopefully have matured at least a little bit, is what I have determined in the past as being negative really oftentimes can be prudence, uh, it can be wisdom. Uh, there are really important people that have spoken into my life and I'm sure yours that have pointed out those things that perhaps you should take in, keep in mind and, and take consideration of, that you should be aware of. Last week's text, I don't know if you picked it up, last week's text was really negative. It was a negative text. Let me remind you, take a look at verses 13 and 14. Paul writes, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised then, and what Paul does in last week's text is he lays out the negatives. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Our faith is in vain. Our witness is false. Our faith is futile. Our sins are unforgiven. The dead are lost forever. We are without hope. Lots of negatives. That was last week's text. And rightly so. Because this is the case. If the dead are not raised and if Christ is not raised, then these negatives are what we face. But look at verse 20, the first verse of our text. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Love this. Love this verse. This is positivity. Lots of positives in verse 20. In fact, that phrase is translated indeed in the NIV and is written in the present tense form, and it means now. At this very moment, the resurrection of Jesus, what Paul is saying is a present day reality. That's why on Easter I will say, he is risen, and you will say, you guys are money. Fantastic. It's a certainty. And with that certainty, Paul moves from the negative to the positive and shows us how the resurrection of Jesus serves us in three ways. I'll give you two today. We'll pick up things with the third next week on Palm Sunday. So here's the first way the resurrection of Jesus serves us. It serves us as a first fruit. Take a look at verses 20 to 23. But in fact, take it to the bank, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, dead, fallen asleep dead. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each at each in, excuse me, his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. What is a first fruit? Well, last week, if you were here, Tim touched upon it, but let me go a little bit further with you and take you to the book of Leviticus, chapter 23 specifically. My goal today is to make you fall in love with the book of Leviticus. Take a look at what is written in verses 10 and 11. Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land, that's the promised land, the land of Canaan, that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. Note that. So that you may be accepted. When does this take place? On the day after the Sabbath, the first day of the week, the priest shall wave. Lots here. And if you don't see Jesus in that yet, I'll make you see Jesus in a couple minutes in that. Because Jesus is all over that. But before we go there, pretty straightforward instruction to the people of Israel. Before the Israelites harvested their crops, they were to bring a sample from it. A sheaf. And presented before the Lord as an offering, a sacrifice of sorts on behalf of the larger harvest. What is a sheaf of wheat? Well, we've got a picture for you. That is a sheaf of wheat. Now, that sample represented the rest of the harvest. It was a first fruit from the harvest. What is a harvest? We've seen that, but I'll give you another. That's the harvest. So we have a sheaf, we have a harvest, and with, hear me, with that sheaf presented by the priest, it, it's offering consecrated, or it made holy, or it made acceptable the rest of the harvest. And so, when you bring in a first fruit, what does that imply? Well, more fruit. It's the first fruit of a kind. Lots more where it came from, lots more. Now take Leviticus 23, fast forward back to 1 Corinthians 15. Who is the first fruit? Jesus. Who's the harvest? Those who are in Christ. In the context of verse 20, the believing dead. Those who are in Christ and have since died. So has the harvest taken place? Well, no, but with the resurrection of the first fruit, Jesus, our resurrection, is secured because you don't bring in a first fruit and not harvest the rest. And Midtown, if you are in Christ, you are the rest. This is why Paul says earlier, if the dead are not raised, then Jesus is not raised, for he is the first fruit. Don't miss that order. Paul doesn't say, if Jesus wasn't raised, we won't be raised. He says, if the dead are not raised, then Jesus isn't raised either. Why? Because he's a first fruit of the harvest. His bodily resurrection wasn't done in isolation, but in an association and representation guaranteeing the certainty of our resurrection. Bodily resurrection. That is why Jesus says famously, I am the resurrection and the life and whoever believes in me, though he dies, she dies, yet they shall live. Anybody remember that song, by the way? I am the resurrection and the life. No? Oh, a couple people? <laughs> right. Yeah, it's a great song. We should bring it back. We should bring it back. When does this resurrection take place? When does this resurrection, our resurrection, this bodily resurrection take place? Well, verse 23 tells us, at his coming, meaning his second coming, meaning no one apart from Jesus has realized this resurrection yet. Jesus is the first fruits of those whose bodies are in the ground now and those who will be alive at his return. Now, the question that some may pose is, well, does that mean, Norm, that if we die now, we're just buried in the ground and we enter some sort of soul sleep, something like that? No. Our souls, when we die, our souls, separate from our bodies, are in the presence of the Lord. And that's better by far. But how Paul describes that state is that we are naked. We don't have our bodies. Our bodies are separate from us. But a day is coming when those souls will be reunited with their bodies, but in a glorified state. What Paul describes as being further clothed. So you don't just get your body back, you get a glorified body back. And the imagery that Paul uses is sort of picture an acorn, your body as an acorn getting planted, and at the resurrection, you're now a mighty oak. It's a sweet picture. And that's the picture that Paul gives us. Paul writes in First Thessalonians 4.16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Keep, keep in mind that trumpet imagery. We'll come back to that. And the dead in Christ will rise first. This is uh, the reversal of what was passed on to all of us by Adam whom Paul mentions in verse 22. Adam is, he's the first Adam. He is a contrast to the second Adam. This is Jesus. And by way of Adam's sin, what Paul writes here is that by way of Adam's sin, all people have inherited a sin nature. And the wages of sin is death. But what kind of death did Adam and his sin usher in? Two deaths. Spiritual death, number one. Evidence when Adam and Eve ran, covered, hid, blamed, accused in their newfound shame. Spiritually dead, but also physical death as well. To dust, they will return. But with Jesus, the second Adam, the better Adam, the greatest Adam, death and resurrection will now have a full reversal. Our, the death and resurrection, excuse me, we now have in that a full re- reversal of those two deaths. In Adam all die, but in Christ all will be made alive. Verse 22. And not just spiritually, physically. And this makes sense, doesn't it? That we have a physical resurrection. I mean, if you go to an artist's house, it would be strange if there was no art there. Right? Musician's house, no instruments, no music playing. A gardener's house and there's no garden there. Be strange. Be strange. You would expect to see those things in those places. But why do we do that sort of thing with Creator God? We worship a Creator and we're the very good of His creation. And therefore, it wouldn't make sense, would it, to enter His kingdom and not see image bearers there. And we will see them. Mighty Oaks everywhere. Before moving on, and I think it's important for me to address this, but I'll do it rather quickly, is the question, isn't this in Adam and in Jesus thing teaching a universal salvation? I mean, if in Adam all die, then wouldn't it make sense that all will be made alive in Christ? Well, verse 23 answers that question when referring to those who belong to Christ. How do you belong to Christ? Well, by grace, through faith. That's how we belong to Christ. God offers us grace in and through his son, Jesus. How do we receive that grace? Through faith, not works, not by church attendance, not by giving money, not by going on mission trips, not going to CG, none of that stuff. Those are outcroppings. They're displays of what's changed, but what's changed has come by way of grace received through faith and when we receive God's grace through faith we belong to him we are in Christ and Christ is in us jonathan edwards writes all human beings are in adam by nature and in christ by faith paul puts it this way in one of my favorite verses 1st timothy 4:10 for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living god who is the savior of all people all people, only one Savior, but especially of those who believe, and we must believe. So, positive number one, where are we? We're only looking at two positives today. The first is Jesus' resurrection serves as a first fruit for ours, which leads us to the second positive our resurrection serves to usher in the end. Take a look at verses 24 to 28. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he has accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him, who put all things in subjection under him. That God may be all in all. You thoroughly confused? A lot of subjection. Let me see if I can, let's focus on some some big things here um, and not get too caught into the weeds. Uh, These five verses, 24 to 28, Drop us into an eschatological discussion. Big word just simply means study of last times. Uh, uh, eschatos, last things, furthest things, so study of end times. And it records in broad strokes the full restoration in, of the cosmos in five verses. This is the full restoration of the cosmos where the work given to Jesus to complete has now been completed, finally and fully accomplished. What is that work? Life right? Perfect life. Life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, coronation, rules at the right hand of the Father. Complete, finally, fully accomplished. And, and that's what it's describing, and with that, life, death, and resurrection, two important things take place. One, our enemy has been disarmed. Colossians 2.15, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. And second, all authority is now in the hands of Jesus. As he says in the Great Commission, all authority in heaven, on earth, and under the earth has been given to me by my Father, Jesus says in Matthew 28, 18, including authority over death, including your authority and my authority. If you have any authority in life at all, parent, coach, boss, It's borrowed authority. Jesus gave it to you because all authority is his. So if all authority is his and he lets us have some for a time, we have to honor him with our authority. That's the sidebar. But all authority is his, including authority over death. But although the future is certain, and it is certain, and all things necessary for salvation are complete, and all authority is in the hands of Jesus, the full redemption story hasn't played itself out. But one day it will. But before that takes place, what Paul writes here is that all enemies, every rule, authority, and power need to be destroyed. Who are these rulers, authorities, and powers? Well, Satan and his minions, because flesh and blood is not our enemy. There there, there is a behind-the-scenes power and work at hand. Satan and his minions and the spirit of this age that they propagate and people buy into, those are our enemies. And what's the final enemy to be taken care of? Well, verse 26 tells us, death. Paul writes there, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And who held the power of death? Well, Satan did, but only under the sovereign rule of God. Satan is on a leash. He's bound on a leash now. And how was the power of death defeated? Really important question. How was the power of death defeated? Well, Hebrews 2 verses 14 and 15 tell us. Through death, Jesus destroyed the one who had the power of death, that is the devil, and delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Death was destroyed by death and rising from it. Power destroyed in perfect weakness. See, Jesus didn't destroy the devil by wielding a sword like Peter wanted to. He destroyed, he destroyed death and the power of death by taking the nails. Oh, the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God. But people still die, right? People still die today, every day. All of us are going to die unless Jesus comes first. But in the fullness of time, death, all death will be no more, finally and forever defeated. And that time comes at the return of Jesus when all those in Christ are raised from death physically. Our resurrection serves to usher in the end, the end of this age. And when that takes place, Jesus will deliver the kingdom back to his father. What, is, what do we need to know about that kingdom? Well, really quickly, let me give you a handful of things that stand out about it. One, it's, it's a fully set free kingdom. It's fully redeemed, no, no effects of sin on it at all. Uh, Romans 8.23, it's a kingdom, number two, that in spite of delivering it to his father, it's a kingdom where Jesus will still reign. Uh, Revelation 11.15, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. John Calvin writes, God is ruler, but his rule is actualized in the man, Jesus Christ. A third element of this kingdom is that it's a kingdom everlasting to everlasting. It's an eternal kingdom, as Gabriel said to Mary about Jesus, of his kingdom there will be no end. Next, it's a kingdom where Jesus' role as mediator is finished. We will walk by faith no longer, but by sight and the dwelling place of God will be with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And lastly, it's a kingdom where all things that stand opposed to God will be banished. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death will be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's what it's like. Who is fit for such a place? Well, only those who are resurrected, glorified, and further clothed further clothed than the imperishable. And that only comes by being in Christ. Over the next two weeks or two gatherings on Palm Sunday and Good Friday, we'll we'll be looking more intently at our resurrected bodies. When do we receive them? What are they like? Why are they necessary? Um, Like I said, we'll look at that over the next couple of gathering times. As we begin uh, to wrap up, and make a turn for home in this message, what's the purpose for all of this? Like, what's the purpose for the cosmos? What's, what's the ultimate end for the story of God? Well, the answer is found in verse 28. When Paul writes, when all things are subjected to him, Then the Son himself will also be subjected to him. That's the Father who put all things in subjection under him. That's Jesus. And here's the end. That God may be all in all. There's our answer. That's the end game. This refers to the unchallenged reign of God alone. It means that God's name will be hallowed on earth then as it is in heaven now. It means that the Lord's prayer will be answered fully and finally. It means that we will no longer be subject to the destructive forces of this present darkness. It means that we will experience God and his creation in perfection and fullness. It means that all things will be united to him. It means that God will mean to us all that he should have meant from the beginning. That's what it means. That's the ultimate purpose for all of us, that for all of this, that God would be all in all. The whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. God will be all in all. That's what it means. So much positivity in this. This is positive. Nothing negative about this. Earlier in today's message, um, I talked about first fruits. Uh, I want to close by going back to them, uh, but not them only. For the of fir- Feast of First Fruits was just one of seven yearly feasts that the Jewish people observed. And don't miss that it was seven. That's not accidental. If you know anything about numbers in the Bible, numbers are important. Seven is a number of completion, creation. It's a number of God. So there were seven feasts. Feasts of first fruit is one of them. Where are these seven feasts found? Leviticus 23. Remember I took you there earlier and I said, I'm gonna make you fall in love with the book of Leviticus. At least chapter 23. What are these seven feasts? Well, the first feast is actually the Sabbath. Sabbath, Sabbath keeping is a part of the seven feasts happened weekly. Friday night, their days were counted evening to morning. So days started in the evening, the evening Friday night to evening Saturday night They celebrate the Sabbath. They observed the Sabbath. What did you do? Well, you rested, but you remembered as well. You remember two things specifically about God. God is our creator. He worked 6 days, rested the 7th, and he's our redeemer. He set us free from our bondage to slavery from Egypt. That's what the Jewish people in observance of the Sabbath, were to remember. Next was the yearly feast of Passover. Yearly. When did this take place? It took place every year on the 14th day of the month of Nisan. In the evening. It was a meal. Took place yearly on that day. Like I said, every year. Uh, Nisan was the first month of the Jewish calendar. Passover was a meal that told the story of the first Passover. Um, And it was played out during the meal. There was an order to things, different cups would be drunk, different psalms would be read, different stories shared, and it would remind those who were observing it of that first Passover. The Passover where, as you know, those houses that had the door frames sprinkled with blood, the blood of a lamb would be passed over by the angel of, of death. That was the Feast of Passover. Like I said, on the 14th in the evening, month of Nisan, the next feast was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This feast started immediately after Passover. In fact, it started on the 14th day as well, on on the month of Nisan, went to the 21st day. This meal or this feast was also a reminder of that first Passover when the people left in haste. They didn't have time to put yeast in their Joe that they were needing, and so they left. They left in haste. During the feast of unleavened bread, you were to remove all yeast from your house, and for seven days eat only bread when you ate bread that was made without yeast. Yeast, as you may know, is a symbol of sin in the scriptures. So what do we have? We got Sabbath, we got Passover, we got the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Next was the feast of first fruits. Which followed, stick with me, followed that feast, yearly observance of Passover, and it always occurred during the feast of unleavened bread. And it took place the day after the Sabbath following the Passover. In other words, it took place on the first day of the week. You with me? You see what's going on? Stay with me. This is tasty the next feast, the next feast took place exactly seven weeks, not an accident, seven weeks after the Feast of Firstfruits or 50 days after that Sabbath, before the Feast of Firstfruits. Feast of weeks, also called by the Greeks, Pentecost. You can hear the word 50 in Pentecost. You know what, what, what it was also called? The Feast of Harvest. Keep on going with me, Midtown. Another feast was the yearly day of atonement where the high priest alone entered the Holy of Holies and representing himself and the people poured sacrifice blood on the mercy seat within the Holy of Holies. A yearly reminder of the necessity of a sacrifice for sins and that only one person can go on behalf of the people. Those are five feasts. There are two others, but let's just stop here. Why the feasts? (coughs) Why the feasts? Well, the primary reason was to teach and remind the people of what God had done for them. And at a time when most things were passed down orally, most often by mom and dad to their children, the yearly seven feasts were crucial. The the feasts painted in vivid colors and used the senses to lay out and describe the salvation story of God. But here's the thing, they're essential for us too. And we have an advantage because we can look back at the feasts through the lens of the person and work of Jesus. What do I mean by that? Well, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus made a really important declaration. He said, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Well, part of the law was the keeping of the seven feasts. How does Jesus fulfill the seven feasts? I love the question. Thank you for asking. Let me describe it for you and how he did that. Well, Jesus fulfilled the Sabbath because he is our Sabbath. Come to me, he invites us, and I will give you rest. Our rest in Jesus, who is our Sabbath, is our salvation in him. Hebrews chapter 4, no more working for our salvation. Rest in Jesus instead. Sunday is not the new Sabbath. Jesus is our Sabbath. And that rest comes because he is our Passover lamb. On the 14th day of Nisan, 2,000 or so years ago, Jesus took the bread and he took the cup and he said, this is my body, this is my blood, eat and drink. It's Jesus' blood that covers us. Yes? It's Jesus' blood that covers us and causes death to what? Pass over us. What did John say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away what? Sin. Sin. Unleavened. leaven gone. Immediately. No more yeast. Get the yeast out. That's what the Passover lamb does. Immediately, sorry for yelling, immediately, immediately. And what's our call now that we're unleavened ones? I mean, the unleavened one took our leaven to make us leaven free. What's our call now? Don't eat yeast anymore. For how long, Norm? Seven days? No, 70 times seven days. Don't go back to it. You've been set free from it. And what happened on the day following the Sabbath during the feast of unleavened bread? Well, on the first day of the week, Jesus rose from the grave, the first fruits of a harvest to come. Why do we gather on the first day of the week? Well, in honor of our heavenly sheaf who made us Acceptable by sacrificing himself on behalf of the harvest and rising three days later. And you fast forward, like in the story, the beautiful story, the beautiful story of the New Testament church, fast forward 40 days and Jesus ascended to heaven. 10 days after that, or seven weeks from the feast of first fruits and on the day of Pentecost, the spirit came and what happened? 3,000 people were added to the church that day. What a harvest. What a harvest. You know what's really remarkable about the feasts is three of them are called pilgrimage feasts. Observant men, 20 years and older, had to go to Jerusalem. They had to make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem for three feasts of of the seven. The other four, they could observe wherever they happened to live. Passover was one. The Feast of Weeks is another. Harvest, Pentecost... And the other is the Feast of Tabernacles. You know what's really amazing when you go back and drop yourself back into the book of Acts and you just think about the story of the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, these feasts, is that those people who were there 50 days after the crucifixion of Jesus are back in the city. Meaning that some of those people, at the very least, were the same people who 50 days earlier said, crucify them. And now they're back. And Peter preaches a message. And in the message, he says to the crowd, you crucified him. You killed him. At the hands of lawless men, meaning Romans, Gentiles. You killed him. You handed him over. And they cry out, what do we do? And Peter says, repent. (laughs) Because the one you handed over died for you and rose from the grave. Salvation is yours. Repent and be baptized. And follow him. Jesus is our day of atonement too, our great and merciful high priest who entered the Holy of Holies with his own shed blood and poured it out on a seat made of mercy. He is the curtain, as we know, that was torn so that we could have relationship and access to the Father. Do you see how Jesus is the fulfiller of the feast? (laughs) And do you see how they paint in, in high, high depth this picture of God's salvation story? And can you see the significance of Paul writing that Jesus was the first fruits and we are the harvest to follow? What are the other two feasts? Well, the feast is a feast of trumpets. And it took place on the first day of the seventh month, and it ushered in a 10-day period of repentance and consecration in the lead-up for that day of atonement that I talked about. The second coming, as I've read today, and as perhaps some of you know, we actually sang about it today as well, will be accompanied by the sound of a trumpet. Trumpets will blow. And each of the judgments in Revelation 8 and 9 are signaled by a trumpet. What what is the Feast of Trumpets? Well, the Feast of Trumpets is to call our attention, turn our attention to Jesus and ready ourselves for his coming, but also to warn others of coming judgment if they don't turn to Jesus. The last feast is the Feast of Tabernacles. It took place five days after the Day of Atonement. It too was a seven-day feast, which reminded Israel of the deliverance of God as they lived in tents in their wilderness journey. We celebrate the feast today by what? Remembering that Jesus came and tabernacled amongst us. We remember this feast today by being reminded that Jesus, by way of his spirit, tabernacles within us. And we celebrate this feast today because a day is coming when we will tabernacle with God and God with us. It's a beautiful feast. Lots of feasts. Feasts are important. Feasts uh, tell stories. Feasts paint pictures. Feasts are experienced with our senses. And they are experienced within community. And so does it surprise you, Midtown, that of all things Jesus calls us to remember him by that he gave us a feast a feast we eat and we taste and we can smell we get up out of our seats why do we get up out of our seats as a reminder that one day when the trumpet sounds you're going to rise and you're going to come forward and what is the first thing that you're going to do when you enter that kingdom you get a feast so let's feast together. Let's feast together. Let me pray for us and then I'll lead us into our a time of, of feast. Our Father, thank you for sending your, your son sent in love for the world. And Jesus, thank you for becoming one of us, a first fruit of the harvest to come. Thank you for sacrificing yourself for the harvest so that the harvest would be found acceptable. Jesus, thank you for being our Sabbath rest, our Passover lamb, our first fruits, and we, your harvest. Thank you for being our atonement offering, bringing us to God. Jesus, we long as well to hear the trumpet sound. Enter and to enter the everlasting where the dwelling place of God will be with man and where God will be in all. In the meantime, may we be people found faithful in telling others of your return. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Midtown, please go to midtownchurch.com.